From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Mason Out Loud. I'm your host, Andrew Hurley. Welcome to Season 2. Mason Out Loud is a project of the Department of English at George Mason University and features the best work of Mason's creative community. Today, we feature the work of Professor Halon Habila, winner of the 2015 Wyndham Campbell Prize and an amazing storyteller, one who challenges our expectations while deepening empathy for ordinary people confronting extraordinary times. Habila was born in Nigeria. In 2015, he returned home to investigate the kidnapping of a group of secondary school girls by Boko Haram the world's deadliest terrorist group. He will read from his most recent title, The Chibok Girls, The Boko Haram Kidnappings, and Islamist Militancy in Nigeria. Checkpoints, or roadblocks, as they are commonly called, are a regular feature of road travel in Nigeria. Nigerians have become resigned to them the way they are resigned to the lack of electricity or running water. Ostensibly, Roadblocks are there for enforcing traffic laws and ensuring travelers' safety. But in reality, they are nothing but extortion points. They have become a place where you paid your taxes at gunpoint, fully knowing the taxes would not get to the state coffers but into private pockets. Since the Nigerian government placed most of the northeast region of the country under emergency rule in 2013, the roadblocks have proliferated. In some places, they have become almost like settlements, humming with beggars, idlers, and boys and girls, out of school due to the insurgency, selling water and food to travelers. In Borno and Yobe states, the epicenter of the Boko Haram insurgency, there were roadblocks at about every two-mile interval. Before the insurgency, the blocks were manned by policemen who would chat with you about the weather or about the traffic as you handed them their bribes. They would even give you change if you had no small notes, all very civilized. Now the checkpoints were guarded by scowling, uncommunicative soldiers in full war gear. I almost laughed when I saw a sign warning drivers that it is illegal to give bribes at checkpoints, with a phone number to call if a soldier solicited a bribe. This was the face of the new government of Muhammadu Buhari, who was elected in May 2015 on the promise to wipe out corruption and Boko Haram. Abbas told me he had tried the numbers and they didn't work. At the checkpoints, passengers in private cars were sometimes allowed to remain in their vehicle, but passengers in commercial vehicles had to get out and approach the soldiers on foot. Often, male passengers had to take off their shirts and raise their hands as they passed the soldiers. Boko Haram insurgents sometimes detonated suicide vests at checkpoints. As the passengers passed, they presented their ID cards to the soldiers who compared them to pictures of the 100 most wanted Boko Haram members prominently displayed at every checkpoint. Abubakar Shekau, the Boko Haram leader, was ranked number 100. His enlarged face with his signature leer occupied the center of the poster. A few faces on the list had already been captured. Recently, Khalid Arbarnawi, the head of Ansaru, a Boko Haram splinter group responsible for the kidnapping and killing of many foreigners had been caught in a hideout in Lokoja, Koji State. One other reason ID cards were checked was because Boko Haram members never carried them. To them, they are a Western invention and therefore Haram or forbidden. I asked Abbas, would anyone without ID be arrested for a Boko Haram member? 
No, not always. It mostly depended on the discretion of the soldiers, on the answers the defaulter gave. Usually the punishment was a fine of anything between 200 naira to 500 naira. Ahead of us was the last checkpoint before Chibok. This was the most important checkpoint of all. The soldiers here would determine whether I got to enter Chibok or not. Vehicles coming in or going out were given a special pass, which they must present to the soldiers. Traders bringing supplies from neighboring towns must have an inventory, listing every single item they carried. Since the kidnapping of over 276 schoolgirls in April 2014, and the subsequent media focus on the families of the kidnapped girls, the government had placed the town on lockdown. Journalists in particular were persona non grata. I was told of a British reporter who came as a guest of the wife of a local pastor and was turned back at this checkpoint. The Chibok native, Reverend Titus Pona, chairman of the Christian Association of Nigeria, Borno State Chapter, had promised that a local pastor would wait for me at the checkpoint and take me in as his guest. When I got the pastor on the phone, he made excuses and said he couldn't meet me. Now my fate rested on the mood of the soldiers. Abbas, whose hometown, Lhasa, was only about 30 minutes from Chibok, said he had lots of friends here and concocted a new story. We were coming from Lhasa to visit his friends, one of whom had just gotten married, and there was a taciturn Michael of the JTF as backup if the new story failed. And so, once more we got out of the car and approached the soldiers who were seated under a giant tamarind tree by the roadside. With them were three civilian JTF members with their Dane guns and knives tied on ropes around their waists. Michael identified himself and handed over his ID card. Next, Abbas handed over his driver's license and mentioned the name of his friend who were ostensibly visiting. The soldier gave a non-committal nod and turned to me. I handed over my state of Virginia driver's license. Americana, he said. I am Nigerian, I said, but I live in America. Mr. Americana, he said. Actually, it's more like Nigeriana, I said, not sure where this was going. But he seemed suddenly to relax. The other soldiers were laughing and echoing, Americana. Now I noticed how young they were. None of them could have been over 25. They were just kids, sent here to fight a brutal enemy who relished capturing soldiers alive and slaughtering them like rams through propaganda videos. They were clustered around the one holding my driver's license, taking turns looking at it. The mood had lifted. So, what do you do in America? I teach, I said. I'm a professor. Ah, Professor Americana. I laugh with them. Professor Americana, why not? He returned my license and waved us through. At last, three of them arrived, dressed in their best wrappers, blouses and head ties. They leaned their bicycles against the wall and entered the house, one after the other. I watched them kneel to greet Ruth, speaking in the Kibaku language, and then they sat on the floor. It was good to see them face to face, finally. So, I said in Hausa, you are the Chibok girls. The girls, Hawa, Ladia, and Juliana, looked at one another, confused. One mumbled something about not being from Chibok. But the world only knows you as the Chibok girls, the ones that escaped, I said. Hawa, Ladia, and Juliana were actually from the nearby village of Mife. They had started school in Chibok, 
three years before the kidnapping, and they all belonged to the same residence hall. They had shared so much together and were still sharing. They sat in a companionable huddle. As they talked, one would occasionally interrupt to, to add something or correct a particular point. I was speaking Hausa, and whenever I asked them something complex, rude, would step in to translate it into the local language, Kibaku, in which the girls were more fluent. It took a while, but gradually they relaxed. That day, they went to school together from Mife, all three of them, on the same motorbike. They arrived at around 8 in the morning and took their exams, which was on geography. Afterward, Ladi wanted to go home. There was a wedding, Ladi remembered. I knew the people getting married, but the security at the gate said I couldn't go. The vice principal was also there. No one was allowed to go out that day. That night, the girls were sleeping out in the yard because of the heat when they heard the gunshots. Some said they should run away. Others said no. At first, when the Boko Haram men came into their dorms, the girls had thought they were part of the school security because of their military uniforms. There were soldiers usually guarding the school? Yes, but not that many, about five or so. What did they do first when they came? They took away our cell phones. Then they asked, where are the boys? But we told them the boys were their students. Then they told us to gather in one place. They said they were there to protect us from Boko Haram, who were attacking the town. Then some of them started saying, Allahu Akbar. That was when we realized they were not soldiers. They were Boko Haram. What else did they do? They asked us for the engine block, brick-making machine. We said there wasn't one, and they said they would search, and if they found it, they would shoot us. Next, they asked for the admin office. Then they marched us out of the hostel to the gate. Where did they say they were taking you? Well, they said we were not students, we were just prostitutes. They called us kafirai, infidels, and said we ought to be married. They said they would take us somewhere near Medugri and dump us there. They had taken foodstuff and pots and pans from the store, then set the school buildings on fire. They led the girls to a nearby village, Mboa, where cars and trucks were parked. They told us to get in. They were in the very first truck to leave. There were Boko Haram members sitting with them. Juliana, who at 16 was the youngest of the girls, remembered some of the men were perhaps younger than her. Did they talk to you in the truck? No, they kept calling us infidels, that's all. Did they talk amongst themselves? They spoke Hausa to us, but to each other they were speaking in a strange language we didn't know. Kanuri, Ruth said. On the way the men stopped and set on fire the foodstuff and the pots and pans they had taken from the school store. Why? We don't know. The girls began throwing their shoes and scarves off the truck, hoping to mark a trail that would lead a rescue party to wherever they were being taken. Like Hansel and Gretel's white pebbles and breadcrumbs. One girl said we should jump, Lady said. But that night, the moon was shining bright, and there were Boko Haram on motorbikes right behind the truck. But as they drove farther, the less choice they had, so they started jumping. Some girls were picked up by bikers and dumped back into the truck. We jumped down and started running into the bush. We ran for hours. I held onto a tree and jumped, Lady said. After landing on her feet, she and three other girls ran all the way back to the school in the morning. Our parents were there. They took us home. What happened after the escape? Nothing.
had an opportunity to talk to Habila about his experiences researching and writing the Chibok Girls. This is what he had to say. The idea for the book came to me when I was on sabbatical. I was working on a novel in Germany, and I was hearing the news all the time about Boko Haram. This was in 2013, and finally we heard about the kidnapping, which took place in April 2014. And that was when, you know, for me, everything kind of came to a stop. I couldn't work on my novel. I was hearing this news, not just about Nigeria, but about that particular part of the country where I came from, the Northeast. Um, So it was really personal for me. And I was really paralyzed. I couldn't work on my novel. I just felt that I needed to write something about these girls, about the kidnapping. And that was when I started, you know, seriously thinking about it and doing some background readings and of course, I was always calling people back home. My mother is there. My um, my larger, my extended family is there. So I was always worried. And then when I get the opportunity last year in 2015, when I talked to my editor, she said she would introduce me to Columbia Global Reports. This is a publishing company who specialize in this kind of um, specific journalism um, kind of assignments. And so it worked out very well. And they sent me to Nigeria. And at that time... I went. I first went in December 2015, and the fight was still going on at that time. It was really dangerous to go to Midugri. This is the epicenter in northeastern Nigeria. Flights had been suspended for a long time, about two years. There were no flights into Midugri. So I was on the very first flight that started going to Midugri in December 2015. So I went there on an exploratory trip. And I was lucky I met um, a young person who became my, my guide, my fixer, um, subsequently when I went back. So that was my first trip there. I was able to use my contacts in the military. My brother's in the military and he connected me to some of the soldiers, the commanders who were there. And I started establishing contact with them, interviewing them. I remember that that first visit, we went around the IDP camps. The IDP camps are, you know, the internally displaced persons camps. These are people who have escaped Boko Haram, who is mostly fighting in the rural areas, in the provinces, and they escaped to the cities. And it was just incredible. You see these small children with no parents who had just, you know, been rescued, and they were just kind of wandering around in the camps. And, of course, women... No men. Mostly the men had been either killed or conscripted or just, you know, basically killed. Um, So mostly women and children. And we went there. Right now, there's a crisis in Medugri because of food crisis. And I could see it at that time six months ago because when I asked the commander, he said there was no plan on the ground for feeding these people or taking care of them. They were just kind of winging it from day to day. He was a military commander, but he had to source for food for these people, which wasn't supposed to be his job. So you could see all these things. And now the United Nations says that around 100,000 people are in danger of starving in northeastern Nigeria currently. Anyway, that was my first visit. The second visit, I was able to go to Chibok, which I describe in, in my book. I went, specifically, I wanted to see Chibok, which was, you know, where the girls were taking these 276 girls, and to talk to their parents and see if I could talk to some of the girls. Out of the 276 girls who were taken that night, 57 were able to escape, and I wanted to see if I could talk to some of them. And that was my purpose for that first visit and I went with my guide. It was a bit easy for me because I'm from that part of the country and I can speak the language and you know I know the the customs and everything there. So I was able to get in and it's not easy to get in. A lot of journalists had been turned back from the checkpoints. I describe the checkpoints in my book. It's there are just every two mile you find a checkpoint all the soldiers. You have to get down, um, open your bag, 
show your ID cards, take off your shirt in some instances. You have to raise your hands and walk. Um, so it was really, really trying challenging um, but I had invested so much I really had to go in there and so I was lucky I guess I was able to go in um, that first visit I talked to some of the pastors I talked to some of the parents um, of course I didn't talk to the girls because they were away at school at that time in January and so they told me if I wanted to talk to them I must come back in March during Easter holidays. And I went back in March. That was when I, I talked to the girls. And of course, the account of my interview is in, in the book. I decided to write this as nonfiction specifically because I felt um, I'm a fiction writer generally. And I realize what fiction can do. I know the, the strong points of fiction and how it can examine things and illustrate things and, you know, make it universal. Um, but I didn't want to be just universal. I wanted to be specific in the writing of this book. I wanted to be, I wanted to say something about this particular thing. And I felt that I didn't have the time. There was this urgency. I didn't have the time to write a novel, which sometimes takes about two, three, four years, even 10 years to write. I wanted to say something immediately about that particular thing. So I guess that's why I chose to do journalism. And of course, I was a journalist in my former life. <laughs> I worked in Nigeria as a journalist. So I decided to do journalism for this one. And um, that's part of the mentality, you know, behind my trip to Nigeria. Just to see this place and to write about it and just kind of say what I want to say. And being from that part of the country, I know the history and the, the background to the religious tensions that have always been there between Christians and Muslims in northeastern Nigeria, but it's never been like this before. We've never had this kind of situation. It's unprecedented. There are about 2 million people displaced by this war, um, about 20,000 killed, um, and it's still ongoing. So it's unprecedented. It's just changed the the shape of the country. It's changed the the... the dynamics of the country and is taking education backwards like a whole generation and if you remember the the meaning of Boko Haram means western education is is bad or western education is forbidden and their stated aim is to stop western education especially to stop women young girls because they understand that women are the future if you educate women you're educating their children as well you're educating a whole family so the kidnapping of these girls from their schools is not an accident it's a deliberate thing it's part of their agenda and they've burned down schools they've killed teachers they have killed school children and so this kidnapping of the girls was the the height of it and that's really why decided to focus on it, use it as a kind of um, this emblematic moment for me and um, for the whole fight. I think the Boko Haram insurgencies can be captured in the story of these girls that were taken on April 14, 2014. You've been listening to Mason Out Loud, a podcast featuring the best of Mason's creative community. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes and tell your friends. This podcast is a production of the Department of English at George Mason University. If you would like to know more about our outstanding program, check us out at english.gmu.edu. Our audio engineer is Lisa Short. Our executive producer is Deborah Latanzi Shooting. Music by Sean Fluger. This is Andrew Hurley for Mason Out Loud.